You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Families, we know, are all shapes and sizes. And yet, in 2020, you still hear comments from conservative politicians and public figures that the best thing for a child is to live in a family with one mum and one dad and possibly some biological siblings. But how many of the arguments for the traditional nuclear family are based in scientific fact? And have any of the arguments for a nuclear family considered the outcomes of those children who live in a non-traditional family structure? Susan Gollenbach is the Director of the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge and the author of We Are Family, What Really Matters for Parents and Children. Hi, Susan. How are you? Very well, thank you. You became interested in family life and what makes a family back in 1976. What drew you to this topic to begin with? So I was interested in child development as an academic subject. I was just beginning a master's degree in in child development and I came across an article in the feminist magazine Spare Rib about lesbian women losing custody of their children when they divorced the children's fathers. And this article talked about the issues that had come up in child custody cases, the assumptions that had been made about the outcomes for children were they to grow up in a lesbian mother family. And it also asked for someone to volunteer to come and do an objective study of these families and the children. So to me, this was a sort of dream come true because it combined my interest in child development with my interest in the women's movement. And it just seemed that I might be able to help and do something that I felt was socially relevant while honing my skills as a a child psychologist. And how old did you say you were then? Oh, I was very young. I was about 21. It sounds heartbreaking. I mean, thank goodness this isn't the case in Australia and I don't think it's the case in the UK anymore, anymore that that could be an argument for separating a mother from their children. But It hasn't been for a long time. I mean, certainly not just on the grounds of a mother's sexual orientation, although sometimes it comes up, but that's not a reason ever now. Thanks to lots of things. Thanks to changes in attitudes. Thanks to a lot of activism. Thanks to governments changing laws. But I do like to think that perhaps the research played some part in that because, I mean, some people were just against any kind of non-traditional family and particularly against lesbian mothers. But for other people, it was more a matter of they assumed that children would be harmed psychologically by growing up with two mothers because this was something that most people hadn't ever thought about. I never mind met anybody in that situation. So it was a genuine concern um, that the children, you know, might in some way be distressed by this. They might have problems in relationships with their peers. They might be bullied at school. Although I have to say that does still go on. But, you know, there were all kinds of genuine reasons why concerns were raised. So I just felt, you know, privileged in a way that I was given access to the families and 
able to play a part in just presenting what the families were like to the general public. Over the years, what are the kind of arguments you've heard people give for why a traditional nuclear family is so great for children? So what, what are the platforms people use to say, this is the way it should be done? Firstly, it's just an assumption because certainly, you know, until the 60s, or until the 70s, really, I mean, throughout the 50s and the post-Second World War years, then that's how families generally were. I mean, sometimes a parent died. Very occasionally parents did separate, but usually there was a huge amount of stigma associated with that. So um, it was an assumption. And this assumption hadn't really been tested very much. But the kinds of arguments when different kinds of families began to appear were that children needed a father and that fathers played an important role in terms of children's gender development, but also in terms of their emotional and social development, that children needed two parents. So these two things were slightly conflated, but certainly um, people thought that single parent families weren't a good idea, either because there was no male role model in the family or because there was only one parent. And because the emerging research on children in divorced traditional families at that time did show that children were at a higher risk of developing emotional and behavioural problems and doing less well at school. But it turned out, you know, as this research was investigated more thoroughly in terms of what the factors were that actually did affect children in this way, it wasn't so much not having a male figure in the family. It wasn't so much just having one parent. It was more to do with things that went along with separation and divorce. So the parents fighting often for years before the divorce took place or lack of social support for single mothers or mothers coming out of a difficult marriage, often having depression or, you know, anxiety and mental health problems themselves. So there are a whole range of other factors. And also, of course, financial problems that single mother families, well, in these days and still now, you know, are more likely to experience. So it was these factors that went along with not being in a traditional family that were problematic for children, rather than simply, is there a father there? Are there two parents there? So to play the devil's advocate, non-traditional families could suffer those similar conditions. Any kind of family could be subject to those pressures, am I right? Absolutely. Any kind of family could. That's absolutely true. But I think when families break up, then there are specific pressures. So family breakdown, um, you know, we know is not great in terms of children's well-being and um, all the other things we mentioned of course you know the drop in income that often happens following family breakdown but in fact the kinds of non-traditional families I talk about in the book are I I usually like to differentiate between non-traditional families and new families because non-traditional families are generally what we think of as single mother families following divorce, 
or single mother families that were formed unintentionally or step families. So again, something that has happened after the child's initial family has broken up. And these families are really very different from the kinds of families I talk about in the book, because the families in the book either are families with same-sex parents, single mothers by choice, or have been informed through assisted reproduction, such as IVF or egg donation, surrogacy, donor insemination. And these parents have struggled so hard to have children, either medically, you know, often following years of infertility treatment, or in terms of the, the negative social attitudes and hurdles they've had to jump over in order to become parents. So it's a very different situation. And these families actually, you know, I think the ones who were less committed to becoming parents, or it wasn't quite so important to them, often would have dropped off along the way because, you know, you don't hear easy stories of forming families in these ways. It's easier today than it was, say, 10 years ago, but there, there are a lot of difficulties. There are a lot of, you know, hoops to get through. So I think those who stay the course are people who really want to be parents. And these people, when they do eventually become parents, become very committed parents generally. So I think it is important not to lump all different kinds of non-traditional families together as if they're the same, because their influences on them are so different. And um, what would you say is the thing that children need most? regardless of the family they're born into? Yes, so I think what really matters for children is the quality of relationships within their family. So, of course, we talk a lot about love, and love is important, but love isn't everything. I mean, also, children need to feel secure. They need to feel that their parents are listening to them, that they're sensitive and understanding of whatever they may be going through, and that they just feel that kind of emotional security. So, and also that the parents are interested in them, they do things with them, practical things as well as emotional. But I suppose, you know, if you want to just sum it up very quickly, they need stability and security and affection, love, all of these things are what are more likely to result in well-adjusted, happy children. And in that research of your book with the new families that you just um, defined for us, was that something that you found was prevalent given that they had worked so hard to become parents in the first place? Yes, so very much so. So there were all kinds of reasons. I mean, each different family type raises a different set of concerns. So if we think perhaps about children born through egg donation or sperm donation, then the worry has been that the lack of a genetic link to a parent may interfere with the relationship with that child. Also, it happens less now, but the secrecy that often has surrounded egg or sperm donation is um, you know, seen as being not a good thing for children. If we think about surrogacy, then, I mean, apart from the ethical concerns about to do with the exploitation of surrogates. But if we think about the families formed through surrogacy, then again, there are all kinds of concerns, you know, perhaps 
the mother won't bond as strongly to a child who was born to somebody else. Perhaps the child, when they find out about their origins, will be upset about what happened, and particularly if the surrogate is their genetic mother. If the surrogate stays in touch with the family, might that undermine the mother's relationship with the child? So all these questions that we just didn't know the answers to. So the question of were the you know the relationships as good in these families um, was one that we investigated because we were coming from a position of people saying there'd be problems in these families. There'd be poorer relationships between parents and children in these families, either because there was only one parent or the child lacked a genetic link or the child had been born to another woman, all these different reasons. And actually, rather than finding problems in the families, we found usually that these families were no different than naturally conceived families, but sometimes we found better relationships that we hadn't expected. But, you know, thinking about it, as we've done this work over the years, it does seem to be very much related to the fact that these are extremely wanted children. And it's more that the children themselves aren't generally even more adjusted than other children, but the relationship with the parents and the quality of parenting in these families is sometimes stronger. I must admit that um, when I read the title of this book, I thought, surely we already know this in terms of families and love and who cares how they're made up. But um, something that came out for me thinking about it was also wondering, given your research is showing how positive different family structures can be with new families, one of the cohorts you looked at were single mothers by choice. And I'm curious, to, it seems anecdotally to me at least, that uh, my generation of women, Gen Xs, there's many more women in my generation having babies by choice on their own than the previous generation before me. And mm. I'm wondering what kind of impact that has on those social expectations that, you know, women must find a man in order to have a family and, and how what kind of impact that has. I know that's not the subject of your book, but I'm wondering mm. if you've observed any kind of flow-on effects from these choices. Yes. Um, I think there is that pressure on women. But, I mean, the women, what's interesting is, and it's not just my research that has shown this, but a lot of the mothers say to us, you know, that's really a misnomer, single mothers by choice. This isn't my choice. I would rather have had my child with a partner, with generally, because these are usually heterosexual women, so with a male partner. But time was running out. I didn't have a partner at the time or not one who would commit to having children or that I wanted to have children with. And I knew I really wanted to have children and this was really the only way if I was going to do that. So um, whether it's a societal pressure or not it's hard to say but certainly these were women who very much wanted to become mothers and put that before other things in their lives so you know I think many felt they would perhaps like to have a relationship in the future and other you know many had had relationships in the past but these were women getting even in their late 30s and weren't in the right place in terms of a relationship to have children and just felt 
you know, it's now or never. And that's why they wanted to do that. I mean, whether it's social pressure or not, who knows? I mean, it could be, that could be true of any family, you know, how much is social pressure? Why do people want to have children? You can't, I mean, it's a huge question. I guess I'm more wondering whether or not they're, they're actually changing social pressure, not so much as they had a baby because of it, but mm, the idea that even in th- this day and age, we still have these expectations or gender expectations in families of mothers in heteronormative relationships, then the mother still carries the most of the, the female carries most of the domestic load, etc. And it just seems with all these different ways that families come together, surely that will shift the idea that certain genders have certain roles? I don't know. I'm wondering what you think about that. Um, Well, I think it certainly is shifting, but slowly. Um, One of my PhD students has just done a really interesting study of stay-at-home fathers. And so these were men in couples where they had actively made a decision that the father would be the primary caregiver. But there aren't so many of them. There are more of them than there used to be. And I read an interesting article quite recently that because of the pandemic and everyone being locked down, that fathers are getting much more involved with their children. So maybe there'll be some benefits of all of this for families um, from that point of view. I don't know. I suppose one problem is that because these technologies exist, well, it doesn't take anything very high tech for a single woman to have a child, but you know, it's possible to go to a clinic and have sperm donation, and it's not such a difficult thing to do these days, that it maybe is putting pressure on women who might, you know, that's like another pressure as well as career pressures and, you know, settle down and find a partner and all of these. So it's, I think it's true of assisted reproduction generally, whenever there's a new technique available then there's always that pressure to try it particularly for couples who are having assisted reproduction for for reasons of infertility so to an extent because it's now possible to become a single mother by choice I hadn't really thought about it this way before but there probably is that pressure and of course now that egg freezing is possible there is a lot of pressure on women young women to freeze their eggs and, you know, till they find the right partner, till they're ready in their lives, as far as their career is concerned, um, to have children. So that certainly is a pressure that wasn't there before because it's something now that young women often are confronted with and have to think about. I'm going to circle back to your book instead of asking you massively big questions about society (laughs) and gender. (laughs) I am curious, and it kind of is related a bit to this idea of assisted um, fertility treatments and the fact that we are having children older. Again, to play the devil's advocate, because I, I kind of believe that as long as a child is loved and has those things that you mentioned, then they're better off than a lot of children who might be born into the so-called traditional idea of a family. But I am curious about the notion of older parents, because one of the arguments you'll hear with that situation is that it is unfair on the child what's your take on the idea of older parents being selfish because their children won't get their best years yeah that's an interesting one so i think it depends on how much older we're talking about 
you know, I think if we're talking about women in their 30s having children, I mean, people are living much longer these days. So I don't see that as such a big problem. I mean, I was born a long time ago. My mother was 40 when she had me, which was, you know, very old in these days. But she lived to be over 100. So, you know, I had... (laughs) I had a long time with her, so it doesn't always work that way. But I mean, that's just a personal anecdote. I don't know. I think it's not so much the lack of time, of course. It becomes more of an issue the older the woman is when she has a child. Although people don't seem to worry about that so much with older fathers. So again, you know, there's a gender issue here. But I think that it's also how the child is perceived in their society and by peers. And one thing we haven't spoken about, which has been a big issue for the families, you know, in spite of the fact that I've said generally, you know, they're doing very well, is the issue of stigma. And for some families more than others, children do still experience a lot of stigma at school and so on. So I think that's what worries me more about having very much older parents, that, you know, for children having a mother of 60 turn up at the school gates, that could be quite difficult for them. And also a mother of 60, as you say, isn't as sprightly as going to not be able to engage with them in the same way. Mm. But a mother in her early 40s, you know, I think these days, then I don't think that's a big issue. You began this journey because effectively the law was discriminating against lesbian mothers when it came to custody for their children. In your research in modern times, have you found that there are laws that discriminate against families that are non-traditional in any way still? Yes, it depends, of course, on which country in the world you're talking about. I mean, when I started this research in the 1970s, The idea that in 2020, which, you know, it may seem a long time away, but, you know, relatively it's not very long at all, we would have same-sex marriage in around 30 countries of the world. You know, it was just unimaginable. So in some ways, you know, laws have changed with the times and have made it easier for families to form in ways that are more in line with who people are and the kind of families they want to create. But of course, in some countries, that's not the case. And it's interesting how, you know, laws do vary from country to country in terms of what the priorities are. So people who find it impossible to have children in one country because the laws prevent them, um, you know, these same people in another country it will be perfectly fine. But certainly legislation is changing in some places more than others. So somewhere like the Netherlands has always been very ahead in in these kinds of issues and probably is one of the sort of leading countries in the world. It was the first to introduce um, same-sex marriage, but also, you know, at the moment they're considering all kinds of new laws to do with more than two parents, legal parents and so on. So they're kind of ahead of the curve. But, you know, you get countries like Russia where in the election, you know, there were all kind of anti-gay laws and the idea of being able to live easily as a same-sex parent family in Russia is just, you know, impossible at the moment. 
So it really, and some African countries as well, where, you know, homosexuality is still a criminal behavior. So it really depends. But certainly in Western Europe, in the United, you know, the United States, Canada, the laws have changed quite a bit and, um, you know, have facilitated new family forms. It sounds like, in a way, um, from your research anyway, that the problem or the challenge for new families, non-traditional families in, in the new families that have chosen to have their children this way, the challenge for them is us, <laughs> is the people around them. It's not to be found in their families if, as you mentioned, stigma is something that can be hard for children. That's, that's sad, isn't it? It is sad, I know. And I think that's where, you know, policymakers really need to put their efforts because what we find is when these children had problems, it was to do with, you know, at school, their families weren't accepted. When other kids bullied them because of their family, the schools wouldn't do anything about it. They didn't see families like theirs and the books they read and the films they watched you know, the pictures on the walls, all these things can make a big difference to children. So um, I think that's where we should put our attention. Well, I love that idea. And I hope that, I hope that it doesn't take another 40 years until this is just the new norm. But um, thank you so much for your work, Susan. And thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. That's Susan Gollenbock, and she's the director of the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge and the author of We Are Family, What Really Matters for Parents and Children. For links on where to get the book, head to the notes in this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.